hello, everybody, and welcome to the very, very first episode of what we hope will be many of our new podcasts, Vintage Sand. Uh, this is Josh, along with my buddies John and Michael, and we are here to talk about film, uh, not in, in the role as film experts. We are not filmmakers. We are uh, not critics. Um, I've had the honor of being able to teach film at the high school level for a long time now, but uh, we are just doing this as fans. We are lovers of film, and we uh, want to share that passion with as many people uh, as care to listen to us. Um, the three of us have known each other for over uh, 30 years. Um, we used to work together a long time ago, and actually I was John's roommate back in 1987-88, uh, about 12 lifetimes ago. And it was the closing uh, of the East Village Frontier. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was the Tompkins Square riots and the end of all that was holy. Yeah, good times. And um, when Life Cafe was still open. That's right. And when it really was like rent. And um, one of the threads that has always connected us uh, to each other is uh, just a, a passionate and kind of over-the-top love of film. Um, so I thought as a way of introducing us to you, uh, that I would, we would talk about um, the moment that sort of turned us from movie watchers or moviegoers into, for lack of a better phrase, film people. So, uh, Michael Edmund, I give it over to you first. What was your moment? Well, I think it was uh, when I was taken to see Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf when it came out in 1966, and I was 11. <laughs> And I loved it. And at that point, I knew there was something wrong with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's a, that's a pretty straightforward diagnosis, yeah. Uh, but uh, I was uh, living in New York. Wait, are your parents at, took you to this? or uh, uh, my, my older sister. Ah, okay. So that, that mitigates a little bit. But. Yes. And, um, Explains a lot, though. <laughs> and I was going to professional children's school at the time here in New York. And many of my, you know, my fellow uh, students were professional actors and stuff, but they would look at me like, why would you even go to that movie? You know, why wouldn't you go to uh, The Russians Are Coming or Fantastic Voyage? Those were the popular movies among 11-year-olds at that time. And I realized there was just something... Um, Boy, 66 was not a great year, was it? Well, <laughs> there were other good movies. There, there was Blow Up. Oh, well. uh, there was... Uh, Classic 11-year-old. Uh, uh, yeah, another one. <laughs> Which I also saw at that age. Did you really? Yes, I didn't understand it though. I, I have to. Well, be many people don't understand it at age seventy. Right. So. Well, that's true. It must have been like playing tennis without a ball. Exactly. <laughs> I did not understand it. Uh, I did not understand it then. But uh, there was a, a man and a woman, and um, Alfie was another one. The Deadly Affair. Nice. I mean, uh, these were films that I was taken to. At, did at, you see Seconds when it came out? Absolutely. Yeah. And I did like it at the time. Must have scared the hell out of you. It did. Yeah. It did. But then I was taken... That's another episode. At age eight, I was taken to The Birds, speaking of Hitchcock, and it was... At age eight? Yep, when it came out. Wow. And it scared the bejesus out of me. That my grandmother took me to. Oh, good Lord. I mean, I saw, like, you know, mm -hmm. Jungle Book and Yellow Submarine as my friend, and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang as my... And I remember... You know, I, I saw was, those, too. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, the child catcher, still gives me nightmares, but there you go. So anyway, that's when I uh, became... Uh, Really, really interested in film. John Meyer? I, I just always remember loving movies from the time I was a little kid. Uh, my family always was always very much into movies. I can remember from being a little kid that my parents watching 
movies on TV, I was always encouraged to watch movies, actually, unless it was a nice day and I was told, get outside and play. <laughs> but many times I preferred to stay inside and watch the movie if it was something I really wanted to see. I think I became acutely aware of how much I loved movies and how much more I knew about movies when I was in high school. And occasionally someone would say, who's that? And I would immediately know who it was. I remember being at a party with some friends and people were watching some movie and some girl saying, who is that? And I was just naming all the actors in the movie they were watching. <laughs> like, how do you know all this? I, said, I don't know. So that was that last party that you got invited to, right? <laughs> <laughs> But as far as Hitchcock is concerned, it was definitely Rear Window making a very, very big impact on me the first time it was on TV. That's kind of those wow they can do that kind of moments. Yeah, it know? was. I, I, I knew it was a phenomenal movie, and I wanted to see it over and over again, and couldn't wait for it to be back on TV again so I could watch it. Did you like me watch the the TV show when you were a kid, the Hitchcock? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. Because that that's how, of course, I knew of who Hitchcock used to always, was. Used to always watching reruns yeah. when I was in college. But even as a kid, I remember. Uh, I don't remember the half hours. I think I was a little young, but I do remember the hour long. Hitchcock. And yeah, I remember, he was very popular. And very, he was very funny. Yes, he had a lot of humor in yeah. the shows. Yeah. Most of them. Occasionally, there was one there was... Some real darkness. Mm -hmm. yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the one, there's the one with Joseph Cotton. Oh, with the tear. The tear where he loses. Mm -hmm. he has the, he's in the accident and he loses right. his power of speech and everything. And there's not much humor in that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's a laugh a decade. Um, and it's funny because my, I'm Josh Cabot. My, uh, my moment is also a Hitchcock moment, not surprisingly. Um, when I was a, I almost failed out of college uh, at Columbia as a, uh, as a junior, uh, because those are the days of the revival theaters, bless them. And uh, they did, uh, I guess it must have been in the spring of 85, um, a Hitchcock series where they showed, of the 53 films he made, they showed 46 of them, and I saw all of them. Hope mom and dad aren't listening to this. Um, <laughs> but... Um, and when you see so, you start to realize that there are patterns there, that there are thematic patterns and certain visual tropes and others that, like an author or a composer or a painter, yeah. that, um, that, that this was art, that it didn't have to be art, but it, the possibility of film as art got me then. And then, of course, you know, to have someone like Hitchcock who could do both in one, make films that were both artistically interesting and fun, that to me was miraculous. So that set me on my downward spiral, and I've, I've never quite recovered from it. Um, in this podcast, in Vintage Sand, we hope to tackle film from um, all the way from Back in Silence to uh, new releases and everything in between. So fasten your seatbelts. It is not going to be a bumpy ride. It's going to be awesome, and we're happy to have you guys with us. So... We will, uh, you film nerds will notice that uh, our title, Vintage Sand, is an obscure, notorious reference back to Hitchcock again already. Uh, that moment when Cary Grant knocks over the wine bottle and it's filled with uranium ore instead of wine. And he says, oh, Vintage Sand. So that's us. So it makes sense that we begin with Hitchcock in our first episode. And our first episode with Hitchcock is... Uh, Hitchcock Obscura, that is lesser-known Hitchcock films. So do you guys think, uh, is there such a thing as obscure Hitchcock? Because, you know, it's like saying there's obscure Shakespeare. Um, exactly. Is there such a thing? Well, some of the silence, you know, uh, some of his earlier work, I mean, I had no idea 
until after I'd seen the play that he had directed a film version of Juno and the Peacock. Juno and the Peacock, that's right. Which is and I think I think most people have not seen most of the British mm-hmm. movies before they came here. And even, but even in the sound era, there are things that, like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, like yeah. uh, Jamaica Inn, uh, yeah, that people haven't seen, and even a couple of the later, you know, the Torn Curtain, Topaz era. So uh, I will acknowledge that, you know, there may be no such thing as obscure Hitchcock, but there are certainly ones that are less well-known than others that may deserve a little more attention than they get in general. So we're going to begin with Michael, and Michael's going to talk about his favorite obscure Hitchcock. We're going to go in chronological order, so we go back to 1950, and Stage Fright. Yes, uh, Stage Fright is a movie that uh, I was not familiar with very much until I went to that uh, same film festival. So that was you. At the (laughs) the Regency. I had heard of it. I knew that it had Jane Wyman and Melina Dietrich, but I knew nothing about it. Uh, I knew that he didn't do another film set in uh, England until he did Frenzy. Right, which is over 20 years. Over 20 years. But that's about all I knew. And when I saw it, I was... um, I was kind of tickled. I thought, uh, oh, this is a good kind of a strange mystery with a lot of humor. Uh, but it uh, is controversial in that it uh, the, the film's plot in the first few minutes has what what is commonly known as a false flashback. A lying flashback. A lying flashback. Uh, in it, uh, Jane Wyman plays a uh, London Rada student and her uh, would-be boyfriend, she's in love with Richard Todd, and Richard Todd comes to her in dire straits, saying that uh, he's being framed for a murder, murdering his girlfriend, Melina Dietrich's husband. And we see the whole flashback uh, of, of what had happened according to him. And then the entire film is Jane Wyman through disguise, through the help of her father, Trying, trying to get him off the hook, trying to uh, make him innocent, and then we find out at the very last last ten minutes that he is indeed guilty. Mm. And this, according to the original book, uh, it was not written that way. It was written that he was indeed innocent, and that uh, Dietrich and her uh, lover manager had framed him for the murder of of the. Uh, husband, Dietrich's husband, and Hitchcock fought against his wife and another writer, Winifred Cook, Willifred Cook, and they wanted to keep the original um, ending, and Hitchcock really fought. He really thought it would be a twist to have him, to have him being proved guilty and having him uh, the villain. And we watch for two hours Wyman trying to get this guy off the hook. And uh, I think there were some critics who um, who basically thought that that was a cheat, that, there, that we were lying to the audience. That we, mm. I, when I saw it, I thought, oh, a twist. Yeah, no, and, and we were talking mm-hmm. about it before, and John was saying that it's actually not a flashback in terms of an objective narrator. No. You know, we're more right. comfortable than we were in right. 1950 with the idea of subjectivity, that yeah. it's his flashback. It is his and flashback. And so I guess he's entitled to lie in his own flashback. Right. You know, in the age after Memento, you know, everything is uh, open to interpretation. So It's also a common Hitchcock theme with a charming villain. Right. Oh, yeah. 
better the villain, the better. It's like Bond. Yeah. And, better the and, villain, better Dial the M for murder is yeah. no better example. Yeah. yeah. Or Notorious. Or Notorious. Or James Mason it's in, the, uh, in James North Mason North North Northwest. Northwest. The other thing Gavin I, Elster does not qualify. <laughs> no, Tom no. Helmore, no. No. The other thing I really uh, adore about Stage Fright is the humor in it. Uh, and Hitchcock cast some wonderful British actors uh, in roles, um, supporting roles like Alistair Sim, who play, who's the great Alistair Sim, who most people don't even know who that is today. Best Scrooge ever. Best, the best the Scrooge, Scrooge, right? Yes. The best Ebenezer Scrooge. And he plays uh, Wyman's father. Uh, Dame Sybil Thorndike plays uh, his, uh, her mother, who's estranged from uh, Alistair Sim, and they have fight, a big fight in the middle of the movie. And uh, Kay Walsh, who was David Lean's wife at the time, she plays uh, the uh, Dietrich's maid, who Jane Wyman has to, um, has to uh, give money to uh, in order to to play uh, uh, Dietrich's maid so she, she can try to find out exactly what happened. Uh, Joyce Grenfell plays a carnival barker. I mean, just little bits. And he creates a very, very charming atmosphere. Yeah, in the humor is just wonderful in it. Which, which as you, you, you mentioned Frenzy before, it reminds me of that. It's exactly. very, like he's very comfortable to be back in England working right. with English actors, very professional. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons that most Hitchcock... Um, a lot of Hitchcock people don't really like the film, is because uh, of Dietrich. Not because of her performance, but because of the fact that Hitchcock gave her artistically free reign to do anything. She did the lighting, her own lighting. She did her own costumes. Although I guess I did read that Hitchcock and her did fight about a couple of them, and they did definitely fought about which songs she would sing. <laughs> uh, he forced Hitchcock this. was always very careful about any song he would choose in a movie. Yeah. Ever, always had, he, so explain it goes, Que Sera to me then. Yeah. <laughs> well, it always, <laughs> well, you know, it always hit. Hey, I won the Oscar. That's true, it did. <laughs> but, it, but it goes back to his whole thing about form and content, which very much relates to his choice of camera angles. He doesn't change camera angle unless he's actually expressing something thematically or about the character. And Hitchcock himself was not happy uh, with the film. He really did not care for Jane Wyman. Apparently, she saw the rushes, saw how beautiful Dietrich looked and how <laughs> plain she looked. And she had just won the Oscar for Johnny Belinda. Yeah, right. And so it was, it was a disappointment uh, uh, disappointment for him, although the movie did make money. And this was the first Hitchcock movie to make money since Notorious because parroting case... Rope and Under Capricorn all were financial disasters. And uh, this one did, actually did make money. So I wouldn't call it an underrated Hitchcock because it was successful. But he was not happy and it's not considered one of his best. But um, And it's hard to find. It's even hard to find on a DVD. I mean, Turner Classic Movie ha we'll show Movies it. have it. They're going to have it next month as part of uh, Melina Dietrich, M Star of the Month. But uh, I think it's I think it's always worth a watch, and I think. Um, and one of the things I always found charming about the film was was the presence of his daughter in there. Yes. Who, wonderful in strangers in a uh -huh. strangers on a train, but um, and don't she, forget she, Psycho. 
and and that's right. But she's she's lovely in this. She's yeah. quite believable and sweet. She's good. She's more of a, more of a believable of a student than Jane Wyman. Is. Yes, Jane's a little. <laughs> well, she was a real student. She was yeah. going to the Royal Academy right. at the time. So it's typecasting. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So and the, and so uh, that was followed by you know the much more successful Strangers on the Train. Uh, and the film I'm going to talk about is the one that comes directly after that, which was also a film that was uh, is marked by Hitchcock's discomfort with some of the actors involved, and particularly the star, although this was a much less pleasant shoot, apparently, than Stage Fright was. Uh, I'm talking about 1953's I Confess, and the actor in question, of course, is Montgomery Clift, who plays the lead character, Father Logan. Um... The plot of I Confess is very high concept. It's set in Quebec City, very deliberately, of lots of churches in a very Catholic film, as we'll talk about more later. But uh, he, uh, he is a priest with a past. Before he became a priest, before the war, he had an affair with Ann Baxter's character. They were both unmarried at the time, but uh, he was a bit of a wild child, and he came back changed after the war, and he's become a priest. And uh, one night, the sacristy, uh, who works in the church, uh, we uh, come stumbling into the church late at night, and he has apparently just killed a lawyer who he works for as a gardener occasionally, named Villette, um, and uh, not, coincidentally has done it while wearing a priest's cassock as disguise, and you can see right there where this is going. He confesses his crime to Father Logan, Father Logan, it turns out, in an interesting coincidence, was being bribed by the dead man, uh, blackmailed rather, by the dead man Villette uh, about his past. So, Father Logan had motive, Father Logan had opportunity, Father Logan gets accused of the murder and gets put on trial uh, because he cannot break the sanctity of the confession. And the tension in the film, of course, it's not a whodunit, we know at the very beginning whodunit. In fact, one of the, it's a very famous opening because we see Hitchcock sets us up with a bunch of one-way signs in French, arrows pointing, all these arrows pointing, and then what they point to is the open window where we see um, Keller, uh, the sacristy, murdering Villette. So uh, we know who the killer is. The question is, will Father Michael break under the pressure and to save himself, or will he maintain the sanctity of the confession, even at the cost of his own life. Um, some real problems, as I said, with this film. There is a reason. It's not as well known as some of his other films of the 50s. Uh, Clift uh, it was just about as a, a nightmare of an actor for Hitchcock because he was a method actor, and he, uh, you know, wrestled with every single decision and just drove Hitchcock crazy. He also had a bit of an alcohol problem at the time, and he wouldn't do anything without his acting coach, Mira Rostova, uh, present, which John reminded me of before. And um, that did not work for Hitchcock. And Baxter is okay. She's all right. She was and, a last-minute replacement. Right. She yeah. was, uh, it was supposed to be... She this, is a flaw in the movie. Yes. It was supposed to be Anita Bjork, who is a Swedish... Uh, star who, uh, you know, supposed to be the next Ingrid Bergman in a long line of next Ingrid Bergmans for Hitchcock. <laughs> um, and uh, she, didn't show, she showed up and she was pregnant uh, with an illegitimate child. So the studio said, eh, no, let's go with Ann Baxter, why don't we? Um, yeah, there's also, it's, it's not a lying flashback, as Michael talked about in Stage Fright, but there is a rather lengthy flashback showing the indiscretion between Montgomery Clift and Ann Baxter. 
uh, before the war that kind of goes on too long. Also, unfortunately, there is no chemistry whatsoever between Ann Baxter, you know, who basically referred to, she, she had some very disparaging things to say about Cliff. Let's talk a little bit about the, the flashback itself, because I know the movie was criticized for the flashback itself. I know that the movie was criticized for the flashback. A lot of people didn't like the way it was done, but I think the point of the flashback is that it's the Ann Baxter character's point of view, yes. and she romanticizes everything that happened with Father Logan Montgomery Clift before or whatever. Absolutely she's still, right. She's still in love with him, and it's her point of view that flesh. And it's almost like a Vaseline around the lens yes. kind of yeah. you know gauzy romance. Yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. correct. And um, th those are those are the negatives. Uh, I mean, uh, Clift you know, is. Occasionally looks like he's made entirely of wood. I hope they kept him away from open flame during shooting, uh, just as a safety precaution. But um, we were talking before about one thing that Cliff does better than most actors is stillness. And that fits the Father Logan character, the stoicism of this character who must endure, almost Christ-like, this persecution uh, when he could free himself with one word but can't because of the vow he's taken. Um... The, here are the good things about it, though. First of all, if you love Quebec City like I do, the city's never looked better. It's glorious black and white, you know, shot um, in the... Was shot it totally shot there? Or? Yeah, uh, I think maybe a couple of things done in the studio mm. uh, in post, but not, but not much. It's almost all there. Um, the Chateau Frontenac, the hotel that dominates the skyline of the city, the Levis Ferry, um, and lots of beautiful light and shadow um, shot by Robert Burks, his, uh, his long time... Uh, photographer. Um, I love that opening with the arrows. That's a little gimmicky, but it's great. There's also, as with stage fright, as Michael was talking about, a lot of really good actors in smaller parts. Carl, Carl Malden uh, plays the uh, policeman. Uh, Brian Ahern plays the crown prosecutor and uh, some really good people in small parts, and especially um, the sacristy, the murderer, played by the German actor Oli Hasse, and his wife, uh, who doesn't have much to do in the film, but I think is really crucial to understanding the film, played by the great German actress Dolly Haas. She was the most memorable. Lovely, yeah. right? And she was She's the... excellent. And this was her only American film. Wow. She acted a lot in films in Germany uh, previously, but this was her only uh, film. She retired after this. Um, and that's... That's why... For, well, first of all, let's talk about her, because this leads into the whole autobiographical aspect of... I confess, it's a it's it's a film that feels like it's revealing a lot about its director, which is something that Hitchcock does not usually do, at least until you get to Vertigo. First of all, her character, who has a different name in the play the movie's based on, her character, he changes the name, Hitchcock changed her name to Alma, the name of his own wife. And all the lines that Keller says about his wife, how she works so hard and this and that, he's talking about Alma there, his Alma. Yeah. And it's really kind of powerful. And uh, spoiler alert, her death at the end is easily the most memorable scene in the, um, in the play because it ends up being her who looks like she's about to speak the truth publicly about what her husband did. And he, he shoots her to try to shut her up. And the autobiographical connections go much deeper than that because Hitchcock, recall, was born and raised Catholic, which in London at the time was kind of an unusual thing. And he was educated by the Jesuits and with a very strong sense of guilt. And um, 
it's it comes through in every minute of this film, his Catholicism, and it feels like not nearly as much as in a film like Vertigo or The Birds, but it really does feel like we're we're getting a sort of unexpected look inside his mind, uh, which he does not usually do, and this idea of shared guilt uh, that is the Hitchcock theme, the common Hitchcock theme seen through this lens of Catholicism then becomes even bigger. It becomes the guilt that we all share, the guilt of original sin and the fact that, you know, and then Father Logan sort of becomes the Christ figure who is, you know, willing to sacrifice himself for for the call. I mean, he's shot in a very Christ-like kind yeah. of way, remember. So, There's a lot of religious iconography that's shown throughout the entire movie. And it fits so well with uh, with Quebec because it's, it, it is, it's still, to this day, such a Catholic town. And, of course, there's confession, which is a theme that shows up a lot in Hitchcock, uh, most importantly. Uh, and if you haven't seen it, it's worth seeing once just to be a completist. Um, Ingrid Bergman does a fantastic one-take, ten-minute confession scene in Under Capricorn, which Mike, had, Mike mentioned a little bit before. The last thing I'll say about it is that when the French New Wave <coughs> critics, they weren't directors yet, got their hands on this film, uh, they, they loved it. When um, Eric Romer and Claude Chabral wrote the first book ever written about Hitchcock, which is 1957, unfortunately. I wish they'd waited a year for Vertigo. That would have been great. <laughs> but they did not. Um, they put this among his greatest achievements. And uh, the, the French New Waivers were all huge fans of this film. Uh, it feels very in, intimate, personal and even though the plot is a little mechanical and the acting tends to wooden sometimes I think it's really um, revelatory about who Hitchcock is as a person not just as a director did it do any business it made a little bit of money it didn't fail it didn't do strangers on a train business yeah. and it's not surprising then that after it he went you know whenever he has a failure he retreats back to formula yeah. so then he goes back to dial M for murder which was uh, you know a much a much more popular and mm -hmm. easier film to hang on to but I think that the difficulties the thorniness Again, pardon the uh, the Christ pun there. The thorniness of I confess is what makes it still really interesting and watchable today. So I recommend not only seeing I confess, but I also recommend if you can track it down, Romer and Chabral's book, which is just called Hitchcock. As I said, it comes out in 1957, and it's a lovely segue to what John's going to talk about because the last film it deals with is 1957's The Wrong Man. And The Wrong Man in itself is a very, very common theme throughout all Hitchcock movies, and it sort of links our three movies because it's the wrong man theme that's being prevalent. And the title of the movie is The Wrong Man. It's right out there in front. Based on a uh, true story about a musician named Banny Balistrero. Did I say Banny? Manny Balistrero. Uh, he was a musician at the Stork Club. He lived in Queens, and he was falsely accused of robberies. And... Um, the, the beginning of the movie, I, I think, is really beautiful. Uh, the way that Hitchcock films uh, Henry Fonda, you quickly identify with him. Uh, the way that he sets up this idyllic family life. Uh, you see him coming home after playing through the night uh, to his wife, played by Vera Miles, and his two children and everything. You find out that she needs to have dental work and he's going to figure out a way to borrow money. When he goes to the bank, that's when he's falsely accused. Um, the police come. 
he's not allowed to talk to his wife. He's slowly taken away. There's, I, I, lo I love the way the movie is, is, is set up. And the thing that always stayed with me very, very strongly was the part when uh, Manny, after the trial has already started and everything, his wife has begun to retreat right. into illness. And the way the Hitchcock shoots when Henry Fonda comes home after another night of playing through the night with the band and contrasting that with the way he opens it, uh, the point of view, seeing Vera Miles sitting in a chair, she's very contained, but you, tell, you can tell right away something's not right. And Hitchcock shoots in a way to make her look very small. And then he goes to a master shot with Fonda at the edge of the bed, and the bed is between them, and she's sitting in a chair. And at the beginning of the movie, you see the, the love and intimacy between the two of them when he comes home. At this moment, you see that just they're not connected at all because Rose, the wife played by Vera Miles, has retreated completely into herself. And it's heartbreaking. And Vera Miles is, is excellent. Yeah, I was going to so, say that's... And so is, so is Henry Fonda. But, uh, you know, Fonda's greatness is indisputable. But I, I, that's the thing I remember. I remember two things about the film. I remember how good Vera Miles was and how subtle her transition into what I guess is essentially a nervous breakdown yeah. is. It's yeah. very just her kind of looking away, looking down at first, and then it becomes full-blown. She just can't deal with the injustice of it all. And just that feeling of the walls of the theater closing in around me because it's... Well, slowly but surely, everything's taken away from him. Right. And, and it's hard for audiences to watch now, too, because there's some things that happened that people just don't believe, but it was before Miranda. So there's certain things that the police right. can do and everything yeah. that they can't do now. And I remember the first time seeing it, you want to scream out, like, leave him alone. <laughs> and, and, there, and it's really almost at the same moment where he finally, Rafanda finally, like, speaks out and says, like, am I being accused for something? And it's a great shot because there's not quite a full close-up, but the camera swoops back and he's like, am I being accused of something? Mm. You know, and he's just. And the other, the other shot that stays with me is, you know, tying into I confess and the Catholicism is that he's praying with with a rosary, isn't with he? With the rosary, and then there's that great shot of the 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 real the real criminal criminal yeah. walking into the frame backlit. Yeah, oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah, the, the dissolve between the two of them. You see the similarity between them and why they, you know, the mistaken identity, why that happened. The thing that I remembered most, and I've only seen the film once. Uh, is Vera Miles hmm. and her breakdown, and even at at the end when they supposedly go go away to Florida, and you get the feeling she's never going to be the same again. Well, he when he comes back after uh, the real criminal has been revealed and everything, and he then goes back to the the sanitarium where she's been committed to or whatever, and he's the disappointment in Fonda's face that because he realizes that she's not, not going to probably any, come back yeah, from that yeah. or whatever he was thinking that her being told that you know it's okay now and everything and her reaction is basically that's okay for you yeah right that's right i remember that yeah, oh my god uh, i always thought that vera miles especially after seeing that movie was a uh, terribly underrated actress. I agree. And, yeah, and the odd. She's thing very I, real. And the odd thing about her is, 
uh, you get the feeling, I get the feeling that she didn't really like acting or any part of the business. She retired at 65, um, I think after a murder she wrote, took her Screen Actors Guild pension and basically disappeared. I think she lives in Northern California. Um, Janet Lee wrote a little biography about uh, filming Psycho and yeah. she tried to interview her. Real yeah. Mouse would have nothing to do with it. Yeah. Apparently someone who uh, wanted to, uh, was doing a John Ford biography uh, was trying to interview her because you know she's in uh, the man oh, and, and the man and Liberty Valance yeah. shot Liberty Valance and basically her reaction is that part of my life is over I do not yeah and uh, she just kind of, and she's still alive well and she was supposed to be Madeline slash Judy in right, Vertigo right which would and have she, been a very yeah. different movie. very very different I don't know how it would have been Vera Miles is always very very grounded mm-hmm. very real whereas Kim Novak was sort of there was an aspect of Kim Novak that was kind of otherworldly and malleable yeah. and you yeah. know some, yeah. you could believe that she could transition back, you know, yeah. from uh, Judy into Madeline yeah that someone someone could control her right. whereas Vera Miles would have said forget it <laughs> Too, yeah, too smart. Yeah. She plays it. It also, you know, it feel. I don't want to. You know, Hitchcock was not happy about that about no. her oh, not no. being he, able to. Do he, well, he talks about it in the Truffaut book. He yeah. thinks that Vertigo uh, is somewhat of a failure, and he, he blames it on Kim Novak, which I think is completely wrong. But yes. that's another yeah. episode. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I, um, you know, and what always struck me about the Wrong Man is that when you read biographies of Hitchcock, you always hear this that most likely apocryphal story about he did something bad, remember, when he was five. Right. yeah, and his and, father, and his father him, gave him a yeah. note, mm-hmm. and he brings around the corner to the to the police, and the police yeah. lock him in jail for five minutes and say, this is what we do to bad little boys. Yeah. And if that story is true, then the wrong man is really kind of the ultimate expression of his fear of it, even, especially even unjust incarceration. Yeah, even though the movie is always sort of promoted as being some sort of documentary-like thing or whatever, it's based on a true story. But right. as soon as the movie starts, you see all the Hitchcock touches. Uh, the Bernard Herrmann music, uh, uh, the way the camera is used. Uh, when he's first leaving the store club, you see how he's flanked by two policemen, which echoes the two detectives right. coming to take him away when he goes up to his house. Uh, it's a beautifully shot film, but definitely no humor. He doesn't even oh. do, he doesn't even yeah, do his yeah. usual cameo. He just talks. It's right at the beginning, right? Yeah, he just he, talks. it's like and I'm going to get deliberately. It, it's yeah, almost he like a TV series. Yeah. Get yeah. this out of the yeah. place. You know, this is a serious movie. Yeah, right. but yes, there's there's, there's almost no humor in it at all. Yeah. All right, so Michael, you had mentioned this question before, and it's a, it's a good exit question. Um, forgetting the sound films for a second, because there are so uh, the silent. silent films for a second, because there are so many of the silent films that are not very good or that no one has seen. Um, although, check out check out the Ring sometime. I'm a fan of that one. But in the sound era, what's your what do you think is the worst Hitchcock film? The one most deserving of obscurity, shall we say? Under Capricorn is pretty bad. It's beautiful, I remember. I mean, I remember the colors of it. I like Joseph Cotton in it, but yeah, it's pretty bad. I remember liking Margaret Layton in it. I think she that, was, Right, she was like Mrs. Danvers, yeah. right? She was evil. Yeah, and I think that might have been her film debut, but I remember liking her a lot. Uh, I need to see it again. I mean, I, I saw that at that same film that festival best, yep, thinking, me too. oh my God, when is this going to be over? <laughs> I think Topaz doesn't work because it's too overtly political. It's 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 not really. I think a lot of people thought that was going to be a perfect Hitchcock story and everything, but it's no. And it's, 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 it's Topaz it's is my is my um, 
uh, nominee. Although when I was uh, <laughs> when I was on Jeopardy back in 2011, and the category was in fact birthstones, the only question I got right in that category, <laughs> I, this is true. You can look it up. July 1st, 2011. The only one I got right was this November birthstone is also the name of a Hitchcock film. I was like, bam! What is Topaz? Thank you very much. But yeah, Topaz, like Foreign Correspondent, Topaz feels like it's being written as it's being made, but for some yeah. reason and updated with as news comes in. But whereas it's, <laughs> I like but uh, but I, but it seems to work in Foreign Correspondent, yeah. and it does not work in Topaz. So no. I'm gonna say, to, although Torn, torn Curtain is Mine definitely is torn, as big. Mine is yeah. Torn Curtain. Uh, and Paul Newman and Julie Andrews. No chemistry. Absolutely. It, it's a perfect yeah. example of how two stars, good actors, both of them, I mean, Paul Newman's a great actor, have absolutely no chemistry. I mean, it, it's just, there's just nothing there. And even the character performances. Uh, and another actor. Do you have Lila Kedrova. Lila Kedrova. Uh, another nice. actor who terrible. did not get along with Hitchcock. Paul Newman, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. another yeah, method that's actor. true. That's true, but uh, and even the music is bad. I know that's the movie where he fires Bernard Herrmann. Oh God! And have you heard the score? You know they recorded Herrmann's no. score, and you would know it would have been it's beautiful. And Hitchcock, mm-hmm. you know, could have stood up to the studio and said, "Hey, I'm Alfred Hitchcock. We're using Herrmann's music." But he was such a a toady to Lou Wasserman, apparently, that when they said, we need something more jazzy for the kids, out went Bernard Herrmann well, after so 10 years. Supposedly, both Newman and Andrews was forced on him. He did not want either one of them. Yeah. It hmm. t- t- Interesting. But it's, it's, Let's it's go back for a moment dreadful. to the whole thing, the Hitchcock story about him being put in jail when he was a child and everything, because in The Wrong Man, the depiction of when he has to go to jail is just, I mean, bleaker than bleak. Uh. But it's filmed beautifully. The the close-ups of uh, all point of view from Henry Fonda. Henry Fonda's point of view glimpses the people's shoes, their hands, the handcuffs, and it's just heartbreaking. And and you sense his absolute desperation and loneliness. His his entire life has just been ripped apart and taken away. Uh, and for no. Reason he's done. He's a good man, a decent yeah. man, a religious yeah. man, a man of faith, yeah. and nonetheless, like you know, it's kind of Job-like, he's punished. And that—that's what it made. Yeah. That's what it reminded. When you said yeah. that everything was taken away one by one, that yeah. that clicks something, and it's Job. He's he's kind of a Job yeah. figure. But and Henry Fonda brings such a quiet kind of dignity yeah. to that yes. part. Yeah, quite wonderful. Yeah, he's excellent in it. And it's, it's a shame that that's the only time they work together. Right. Did they get? Along? I I have heard they didn't get along mm. that well, and the I you know. I, the only thing I can think of is they, Hitchcock always wanted control. He liked to tell actors, no, look this way, do this, do this and everything. I think at that point in Fonda's career, he was probably thinking to himself, hey, I know what I'm doing. Don't Leave me alone. Freaking Fonda, yeah. <laughs> he, exactly. fought, he fought with John Ford on Mr. Roberts. Yeah. I mean, Ford, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, so that is our uh, first episode of uh, hopefully many of Vintage Sand. So to recap, generally, if you're looking to expand your range beyond the Hitchcock films that are typically shown over and over, the rear windows and vertigos and psychos and birds, um, Michael recommends Stage Fright from 1950. I recommend I Confess from 1953. 
and John recommends The Wrong Man from 1957. Uh, we want to thank uh, Melissa Cabot for her technical help. We want to thank Melissa's friend Gabby for designing the logo. We want to thank Mama Sue and Alexa for the use of the hall, as they say. And uh, Vintage Sand is a five nines and a four production, and we look forward to... Okay, that's such an inside joke. Okay, we'll explain someday. And we will see... Perhaps you, someday. Perhaps someday. And we, we will uh, see you at the next episode.